Podcast, episode 55, a sequel to the Die Hard franchise. yippee ki <laughs> That was pretty good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> How many times did you have to practice that? <laughs> Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Welcome to the party, pal. Come on to the podcast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. How does the same goofy podcast happen to the same guy twice? Welcome all employees of the Nakatomi Corporation and international thieves alike to the Sequel Quest podcast. We've got an action-packed show for you today. Listener, Bubby, I'm your podcast hosting White Knight, Adam. Sitting behind the mic barefoot while making a fist with his toes, it's Jeff. Yeah. And next to him, furiously trying to unlock a safe <laughs> while his cronies take on the LAPD and the FBI, it's Jeremy. Hey, hey. So tonight, we are talking Die Hard, the series that made Bruce Willis an international superstar and changed the action film genre forever. Uh, this film series was actually suggested by our special guest host for this episode, a listener to the podcast who made his way onto the show without resorting to hostage taking. We're all very grateful for that. Hold on, hold on. We haven't seen Justin in a while. <laughs> that might be the surprise. That'll be the twist. <laughs> Uh, but he's a gentleman with uh, production experience in films, commercials, television, working with groups like MSNBC, The Weinstein Company, Universal Studios, and currently an adjunct professor of film in New York City. We're excited to say, yippee-ki-yay, Michael Canetti. Hey, how are you guys? <laughs> that was pretty good. That was good. That was good. How many times did you have to practice that? <laughs> a little Bruce Willis in all of us, right? We all got the John McClane vibe. Absolutely. I'd like to point out that I was being teased before uh, we started about not being terribly familiar with the entire franchise. And yet, Adam, every single reference you have made thus far comes from the first movie. It does. He's absolutely right. Speaking of which, so, Michael, what made you want to talk about Die Hard? Because you were very passionate when you came to us. By the way, one of the people to actually send us an email, you can do it too, sequelquestpod at gmail.com. But tell us about your... I'll tell you. <laughs> Our finger is just on the button. Hey, an email. Let's go. <laughs> we try. <laughs> well, you know, I, honestly, I started listening to you guys maybe about five or six months ago, and I started with the Dark Knight franchise, and I kind of worked my way through and so on and so forth. I'm like, these guys seem like my kind of people, and I feel like Die Hard would be a fun movie to talk about. So the other question, how did you hear about us? Because... Because we're kind of hard to find, I guess. I mean, we try to spam the internet, but... <laughs> I listened to Epic Comic Cast for a long time, and they talked about you guys in one episode, and I'm pretty sure that Geek History Lesson also spoke about you guys, and I'm like, okay, these are two shows that I like to listen to, and I'm like, let me check it out. And then I'm like, these guys are 
buddies that remind me of my friends. And I started just <laughs> listening to more and more and more because I kind of like the nonsensical style that you guys have. Riffing off of each other is fun. It just kind of got me hooked. And I've been pitching you guys to my friends now. Like, oh, listen, they're us. They're us on the West Coast. Listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we got to do. We got to start franchising the podcast. Let's so sequel quest NYC. <laughs> <laughs> did oh, you get? Great, did though. you get all the way back to uh, Joe Piscopo as the sequel to Sloth? That's how <laughs> it all started. Is it really? I haven't listened to the yeah. first episode. Yeah, no. Episode zero: The Goonies. Adam threw out that his new sloth is Joe Piscopo, and he got plastic surgery, and <laughs> we uh, all... you know, there's a whole story there, yeah, a that, very long. That story. one's like three hours long. So <laughs> yeah, if you're in for a long like, drive, go for it. I was like, that's a long one, but that's why I was like, you know what? I'm a big Batman fan. I was like, I'll dive into the that, the Dark Knight ones. Then I did the Matrix ones, and so on and so forth. And I was like, okay. And I, I was just I was hooked with you guys. So I was like, all right. They seemed yeah. like I could be my friends. So I was like, all right, uh, good. Uh, well, you you are our friend, definitely. Yeah, exactly. We're everybody's friends. All right, Michael. <laughs> so these guys aren't sold on me, but what did you think of the Fantastic Four episode? Honestly, I enjoyed it. <laughs> ah, I, I, we win. We win. Okay. I, I liked. The different takes that you guys had on it, it was it was a fun episode. And I, I said this to Adam the other day. I really enjoyed the shadow one. I listened to last week. I was like, oh, I could get into this one. This is a pretty good idea. This is fun too. So I was most of your episodes I really, really enjoy. Yeah, well tell your friends, folks. Spread the gospel, <laughs> sequel quest. Michael's doing the Lord's work. But uh today <laughs> we're getting intense here with Die Hard. I did not personally watch any version of Die Hard until about seven or eight years ago, but they have been a part of my life peripherally for a very long time before that. And I have several stories to share that I, I'll get into as we go along here. But I'm just curious, like Jeff, for you, where did Die Hard fall in terms of films that you were familiar with? Uh, I don't know if I could say like when I first saw it or anything. I've watched it for years. Every single Christmas, my big soapbox that I always try and convince people of is that if we're going to call It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie, we have to call Die Hard a Christmas movie. Because the only thing Christmassy about either of them is they take place on Christmas. But nobody actually believes me on that one. Well, isn't that a Shane Black trope, though? I think I invented it myself. I <laughs> but yeah, especially back in the high school, college days, you know, a good Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is it's like comfort food for a 20 something guy. But there's something about Die Hard that I think is so fresh and unique that really just makes it stand out. Because for me, unlike you, Adam, where I felt like Die Hard was always on television, like every time I'd flip by TBS, it seems like it was always on. So I virtually never got to see the beginning where he actually, you know, like you mentioned about the balling up his toes on the carpet. That didn't make sense for me for about 20 years until I finally <laughs> saw that opening. But yeah, I watched it over and over and over again. It's okay. funny you say that. Whenever you catch it on TV, I always catch it at the part where he's crawling around the ventilation ducts. Oh. And for me, I, like that's the where I always saw it. And then again, the fist with the toes until I saw it first on like the box set VHS. I was like... So that's what the fish with the toes thing references? <laughs> <laughs> I do want to throw in, though, since we're talking about television, Die Hard 2 kind of goes down in history of one of the worst dubs of all oh, time. Where you know, one. <laughs> you know this one? 
Oh, yeah. For me, there are two movies that, you know, when you watch them on TV, obviously they edit out the curse words, but they're not going to just do bleeps. Instead, they just kind of dub it over. Mm-hmm. And so the best one is still Snakes on a Plane, where somehow Samuel L. Jackson is dubbed into saying these monkey flipping snakes on this Monday <laughs> Friday plane. <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense. But then the best one is the end of Die Hard 2 when he's blowing up the plane and he says his famous line, yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon. Like, <laughs> no Mr. Falcon anywhere. <laughs> and it's just like, who is Mr. Falcon? It doesn't make any sense. It's Actually, in that movie, the cartel guy, the plane that he was on, they were calling it the Falcon is the reference of the plane that they were transferring him in. <laughs> That's where that comes from, believe it or not. I just love that the dubbing people were paying that close attention to the details of the film that they were, this will work. This, I'm telling you, it's going to work. Yeah. It ties in. You'll, people will get it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but Jeremy, what about you? Because I don't know that like hardcore action films are really your genre. So where are you in the diehard fandom spectrum? Uh, I would say that I'm not a diehard for the diehard series. Uh? <laughs> um, I, I've seen like the better ones, <laughs> typically the older ones yes. and that's about it. I've, I've not, it's not been a series that I'm like, Oh dude, the new Die Hard is out. We got to go see it. And yet I feel like every fifth Bruce Willis film is pretty good, but he has been so prolific since he got his start. Right. I mean, yeah. he was on moonlighting, you know, in the mid eighties and that was his thing. Right. That's what I knew him from growing yep. up, you know, and then he gets Die Hard. And wait, suddenly, wait, wait. Hold on a uh, second. How did you know moonlighting growing <laughs> up? What? You didn't know that? Kid, were you? I was like, I was like in the 80s also. It was on. Yeah. My mom used to watch it all the time. <laughs> well, and I love that girl, the girl who was the secretary who had the really weird voice. And I don't, right. I don't know what her feel was. Her was. Like, but she was great. So, like, that, I don't know. Yeah, I watched Moonlighting, but I, you know, I don't, I'm trying to think of the first Bruce Willis film. I ever really stopped to pay attention to because when I think about Bruce Willis films for me it's like always like Fifth Element and even some of the more peripheral stuff like I know of you know stuff like The Last Boy Scout or Unbreakable you know I saw Unbreakable whether or not that's a a point of pride for him now even though they're trying to bring back that series so that's actually one of my favorite movies of all time believe it or not it's a really if you watch it a million times like I have it's really a brilliant (laughs) film it's crazy I should have given it a second shot. It didn't play for me as well. I feel like for me, unfortunately, bald Bruce Willis is not as entertaining as Bruce Willis with a little bit of hair. So like 12 Monkeys, as he's st- like everything kind of beyond that. I was like, uh. but Die Hard for me growing up, my dad's office building uh, in downtown Los Angeles. I would go there like on weekends or hang out if I was off school for a day, just hang around his office. And being that Die Hard takes place in Los Angeles high rise from the 80s, I was very familiar familiar with that whole setting, that area. And especially, you know, there's several scenes where he's taken out Hans's gang with some unfinished office space setting, you know, where there's a lot of dusty concrete wires hanging, stuff like that. And 13th floor of my dad's office building looked just like that. And I used to go up there all the time. So like when I saw that scene, I was just like, I could be John McClane in this scenario. I know this building backwards and forward. Even I would get the schoolyard synopsis. That's how I pretty much every R-rated film growing up. 
I would talk to my friends whose parents are more lenient. And I remember one buddy telling me about the bare feet on the glass, you know, and picking the glass out of his feet. I was like, oh, I was getting like the, the details and imagining it in my mind. I, I didn't really think about the movies outside of like the early 90s until the PlayStation diehard game. Did you guys ever play that? Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. But it was just like, basically, it's based on diehard with a vengeance, right? You're, you're kind of running around yeah. trying to find bombs and, and do all that. I feel like, too, didn't we kind of skip over like Michael your backstory with Die Hard and why was this such a passion project for you honestly the first R-rated movie I ever went to see was with my dad he took me to see Die Hard with a Vengeance in 95 we saw it like on opening weekend that's my favorite of, of the franchise but how I got started with it it's it's kind of the same as Adam like I saw him on Moonlighting he was also had an episode of Miami Vice that I was yeah he's a that, bad guy he's a bad yeah. guy in that one and then I remember like my cousins who were five or ten years older than me christmas one year he's like oh you gotta watch this movie and we were like so we sat down and watched die hard and i'm like i'm like oh my god there's there's boobs in it like there's uh, there's curses in it oh my goodness and i was like watching with my cousins and they're like no, don't, don't tell your parents and i was hooked so I was <laughs> came out in 88 i think i saw that in maybe like 89 so i was maybe about seven years old so <laughs> Like, Although I feel awesome. like of the 80s action films, you know, aside from the language, this movie feels semi-toned down by comparison to most of the action films of the era. Like in I don't, comparison to like Lethal Weapon? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Lethal Weapon or like Commando or. I don't know. Stuff, you know I mean, like, because no? it's pretty bloody. And I mean, like, if you think about like the guy, I always remember the guy that gets shot in the legs and his legs are all like, I think that was pretty controversial at the time, if I remember. Blew off his kneecaps. Yeah. Blew off his kneecaps, shooting him from underneath the table. And then the blonde guy, he throws his dead body out onto uh, Carl cars. from, yeah. Carl yeah, from that's just Matters awesome. Card. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> I don't, but well, I'm saying it's that, not like RoboCop levels of oh, ultraviolence, well, like for Hoven, you know. Nothing, stuff. I mean, again, <laughs> RoboCop was almost rated X. So RoboCop yeah. is an exception. Same thing with Total Recall. I know, Michael, fan of the series, you've actually prepared for us a synopsis of the five films we've gotten so far. So would you care to share that with us? Sure, I'll go right ahead. Right. So Die Hard 1 in 1988, John McClane, officer of the NYPD, tries to save his wife, Holly Gennaro, and several others that were taken hostage by German terrorist Hans Gruber during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. Die Hard 2, Die Harder, 1990. John McClane attempts to avert disaster as a rogue military operative seizes control of Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. Die Hard with a Vengeance, 1995. John McClane, and this is what they said, John McClane and a Harlem store owner are targeted by German terrorist Simon Gruber in New York City, where he plans to rob the Federal Reserve Bank. They couldn't have said, you know, whatever his name was. They call him the Harlem. Let's put that Zeus. Live free or die hard. 2007. John McClane and a young hacker join forces to take down master cyber terrorist Thomas Gabriel in Washington, D.C. And the last one. A Good Day to Die Hard in 2013, John McClane travels to Russia to help out his seemingly wayward son, Jack, only to discover that Jack is a CIA operative working undercover, causing the father and son to team up against underworld forces. <laughs> yeah. Yippee-ki-yay, yeah. Mother Russia. Mother <laughs> Russia. Wow. Wow. Great. Right now, what they're looking to do with the Die Hard franchise, and I don't know if you guys know about this, 
is they're looking to do a, a sixth movie, but they're looking to do a prequel to the first movie called Die Hard Year One, which is supposed to be like a flashback from McLean, like as his first year as a cop. And it just seemed so ridiculous because I felt like the first Die Hard movie should be kind of his origin story. And to go before that seems dumb. And I'm like, we need to tell a better story going forward and kind of figure out where to go from there. Well, I've just tried to imagine how they're going to de-age Bruce Willis for the prequel. <laughs> I, and, I mean, and give him hair back. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I was hoping you were saying animated series because I've been waiting for years. We got Rambo. We got RoboCop. <laughs> give us a diehard animated series. Why not? Well, hold on. Hold on. Didn't they already do one where Bruce Willis was the old man? Like, kid? Oh, Disney? the kid? The kid? Oh, the, yes, With yes. Elijah Wood? Oh. No, that was North. <laughs> yeah, no, that was North. <laughs> the kid. Uh, just some kid. Yeah, the kid. And then the other one, just, wasn't it a year or two ago, they did Looper? Yes. What's his name? Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt Gordon played Gordon younger Levin. him with, right, so with, see, a, there with you a bad go. prosthetic nose. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that weird lip that you think that he did. So, <laughs> well, there you go. Now you've got your young Bruce Willis, apparently. Yep, it's apparently. not going to be Jack Courtney. We're not going to say that, you know, no, hey, no, no, yeah, no, he was no. great. Now we'll, we'll get to that. But, so yeah, I'll get into that. I was going to say, that was the neat thing I've always thought, especially now as a movie buff. Die Hard was to the action genre what Deadpool was to the superhero genre, where it was this fresh, new, different spin where Bruce Willis, like John McClane, was not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like Arnold right. Schwarzenegger in those movies is unstoppable. And I mean, literally, when you talk about like the Terminator, he can't be hurt. He can't be touched. He, you know, always the one, you know, the most powerful person in the room, whereas Bruce Willis was not. He was, you know, this beat cop that was all beaten and bloodied the entire time. And that brilliant, you know, the end of it where he just barely staggers into the room to be the hero, like, and not only that, but then they also got maybe the greatest villain in the history of action movies. I mean, Hans Gruber is, you know, it was Alan Rickman's debut in a lot of ways. Well, the funny thing about Die Hard is it's actually based off a novel. Mm. It's it's a Mm -hmm. novel called Nothing Lasts Forever. They kind of, basically the essence of the character and, you know, the thing, a lot of things that happen are based off of this novel. That's why it's a little bit different. And the thing with Die Hard that I always liked with the first one is action movies of today, the audience can't take a breath. Die Hard, you know, you'd have these scenes of action where there's, you know, blowing up the tanks or he's throwing guys out of a window or whatever it is. But then you have these bits of lull where they can kind of like let the story move and you can see what's happening to this ordinary guy. He's just a guy. You know, he's not exactly, he's not Schwarzenegger, you know, who's unstoppable. It's the second time we brought it up. So I got to say, he's not Schwarzenegger, but this film almost was because mm-hmm. the book, Nothing Lasts Forever, that became Die Hard is actually the sequel to another book. And it was made into a movie that starred Frank Sinatra that was called The The Detective. And so he actually had first rights. They had to offer the movie to him and say, do you want to reprise your role and be in this movie? And he said, no. And then what was actually happening around it is they were looking to make a sequel to Commando. So Schwarzenegger was supposed to be in this movie and it was about that he was being brought in to test this high-tech security system for a high-rise building. So Schwarzenegger backed out 
So Stephen E. D'Souza, who was the screenwriter, started rewriting it and reworking it. And then they decided to bring in Bruce Willis. And so it was the sequel for Commando that was based on a book that was a sequel to a Frank Sinatra film that then all became, you know, one movie, which is Die Hard. But the fun fact about this is my college screenwriting teacher is a guy named Raymond Obstfeld. He claimed that he actually wrote the book whose plot Commando was stolen from. Huh, and really? so that, yeah, that was like his opening day. He's like, so just so you know, he said, I sued Fox and I won. I got to mostly keep it quiet, but I'm just telling you. And he's like, <laughs> but he, he's an actual legitimate author. He's got his novels that were published. He wrote a screenplay for Schwarzenegger based on one of his novels. I don't think the film ever got made. I think it was called Warlord, the Warlord. And also a novelization of Invasion USA, the Chuck Norris film. <laughs> so really? he, wrote, he wrote, he put that together. So yeah, He's so I was just really interesting, like all the, the history behind that commando, sequel to commando, now die hard. But like you guys said, this first film is amazing because not just the action, right? And not just the character of John McClane, but you put the dad from Family Matters and the jerk from <laughs> Ghostbusters in a movie in their own little plot, and I'm sold. I mean, they're wonderful. Right. Al's story, you just gotta love it. And then, uh, you know, Peck, not Peck, but, you know, when he gets his comeuppance at the end, he gets punched in the face. I mean, that is wonderful. But I, I think we should go around and talk about our favorite scenes. Jeremy, do you have one that comes to mind where you think about this is die hard for me this when this not moment. really no i mean i mean the death scene of hans gruber pretty iconic classic that's which for what the i understand he out. was actually surprised like yeah. he was falling and didn't know they were letting him go at that well, moment I, from from what i've heard they said okay we're gonna do it on three one two whoop and so he actually <laughs> yeah to get that look wow what about you michael my favorite part is when the LAPD tank is trying to roll up on the building and they have the rocket launcher. They're trying to blow the tank up and he takes all of the detonators and all the C4 wraps a computer monitor and throws it through the elevator and says Geronimo and <laughs> yeah. blows up half the building. I think that's, that's the best part of the whole movie because like <laughs> it, it, it just his face when he like he sees the, the flame coming up the elevator shaft and he dives out of the way. It just yeah. that's my favorite part of the whole movie. Oh, that's great. Jeff, how about you? Gosh, it's so tough because it's like, one, every single line that Alan Rickman says is infinitely quotable and just brilliantly performed. I like, I, I still, for random reasons in my life, I randomly quote that now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. I've never had a machine gun, but I just always quote that for some reason. I've done um, that too. But he does, and he just like, you know, you ask for miracles, I give you the FBI. It's just like, oh, they just give me chills. But then he only has a handful of lines, the like, what is he, the police chief or whatever that's the, oh, the yeah. principal from, and Breakfast his Club, line, yeah. oh gosh, where, what is it, when Hans Gruber falls and his first line is, I hope that's not a hostage. Oh, that's <laughs> such a classic line. And then after the, the massive explosion where the helicopters blow up, and he goes, I guess we're going to need a couple more FBI guys. <laughs> <That's a great> <laughs> <line>. <laughs> oh, it's so classic. Oh, that's great. Well, you're, you're talking about Hans, Jeff. I mean, definitely for me as well, like the Hans scenes are just fantastic. And I, my favorite moment is probably when Hans is pretending to be a hostage. Oh, and so yeah. he's doing his American accent. Oh, it's like, no. oh, you're one of them. Please. <laughs> such a bad accent. Oh. But the humor and the tension in that scene is fantastic. But what's so funny is that scene didn't exist 
in the original screenplay, what happened was D'Souza, he was trying to figure out a way to have them meet earlier in the film. And uh, so he was just on set talking to Alan Rickman. He's like, do you do like an American accent or anything? He's like, uh, I do a California accent. And that's that's his impression of a Californian. So, 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 he's, so he's like, he's like, hey, he called the director over. He's like, look, look, listen to what he could do. Okay, if he could do that, I'll write a scene where such and such happens. And like, all right. So they actually, they filmed it. And then they filmed the scene where Hans like kills the first hostage. And McLean was originally supposed to see him in that moment. But instead, they kind of had McLean from behind a pillar just see the hostage get shot. But you don't see who did it. So anyway, I just thought that was a really cool like moment where you could just like, oh, yeah, let's just create this. Let's make this work better because this guy has a skill, you know, that we can work. Um, I do want to throw in, it's not actually a scene from the movie but if you're a fan well even if you're not a fan of bob's burgers they did one episode where gene the son wanted to create a musical version of die hard and his rival <laughs> uh, i saw that one female you saw that one was yeah. gonna do the female version which the female version of die hard is working girl so <laughs> they end up the end they end up coming to the compromise of making one giant musical that's what is it work hard or die trying girl and it's a combination of working girl and die hard but still my favorite moment is there's if you don't watch bob's burgers you might not get it but there's these two twins that live next door to to the bob uh, bob's family uh, Allie and ollie and they come out and they sing their duet which is I'm Agent Johnson, and I'm Agent Johnson, and we're with the FBI. And it's so <laughs> ridiculous that I laugh every time. I gotta but, find that now. Uh, now, as far as the sequels go, you know, I feel like obviously the original is iconic. It's so great. And then the rest are, to a certain degree, unnecessary and increasingly ridiculous. That being said, you know... They each have some redeeming moments. I mean, Michael's already said Die Hard with the Vengeance, his, his favorite of the franchise. So we got to get into that. But talk a little bit about Die Harder for us now. I mean, the most interesting thing I love about this is that Rennie Harlan, the director, he was like this poor Scandinavian guy trying to get a directing gig in Los Angeles. He bugged the people at New Line Cinema long enough that they let him direct the fourth Nightmare on Elm Street film. And that was like this huge hit. And literally like the next day after it came out, he got a call that said, would you like to direct the next Die Hard film? So wow. it's just, it's this success story, this magical Hollywood story. But how do you think <laughs> Ready Harlan With an did? unhappy ending. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. But talk to us about it. Die Harder. What do you think, Jeff? Well, it's funny, and it's. I feel like I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't come up before, because in a certain sense, this is everything that our show is about, that we started off with, was this idea that there was something about that first Die Hard that worked. And so in the second one, I don't know what they thought that it was that worked, but whatever it was, that wasn't it. And so they just, they completely missed the boat. And then I thought the second one was just kind of, yeah, a hot mess of whatever. But I thought that was what was interesting with then the third one, not that, you know, we can get into that in a little bit, but the third one, they changed the formula, but still came back to what actually worked with the first one. Mm -hmm. and, and that was what I thought was interesting, again, about this, the nature of sequels. And also the third one, they bring back John McTiernan, who directed the first one. And they, you uh -huh. know, if you take away Die Harder, Die Hard with a Vengeance is really a direct sequel to the first one. If right. you look at it without thinking about that two ever existed. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because like Die Harder, Die Hard 2, whatever you want to call it, is, I mean, he's now working for the LAPD. So he stayed in L.A. He's trying to make it work with Holly. But for some reason, he was in Washington, D.C. So like, so it's not even taking place, you know, anywhere that he's connected to. He's, he's in the middle of it all. And then obviously Die Hard in an airport. You get your Dennis Franz being a jerk, you know, and all that. But I, I think the one moment for that movie that really works is when they actually crash that plane and oh, kill yeah. all those people. And like, just it raises the stakes in such a real way where you're just like, I can't believe that blow up the tower, blow up something, but especially in a post nine 11 world, it's hits you so hard, you know, but on the flip side for me, the fact that the main bad guy is death from Bill and Ted's bogus journey. That's <laughs> the grim reaper. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. You know, <laughs> I know I'm also from this Harlan Williams, Disney film called rocket man. I don't know if you guys ever saw that, but he oh, plays geez. this put upon uh, astronaut. who can't believe he's saddled with this idiot, but this is my special connection to die hard. They actually filmed a scene for die hard Two in my dad's office building at two thirty three South Beaudry Avenue in Los Angeles oh. uh, for years. My dad's company owned the Pacific stock exchange building. They were set up there. So the police station set you see when McLean calls Al to fax over the fingerprints, that's my dad's building. And wow. So he said they were they were there a couple days and he's, the set design just blew him away because he was like, this looks like a 20 year old police station. He said there's like apple cores on the ground. There's, you know, just dirty papers. He, he said you can just walk in and he couldn't believe it was, you know, his place of business. And in fact, what happened was after they wrapped, he was able to bring home to me something from the film. So I actually have memorabilia from Die Hard 2. It's not featured anywhere in the film, so I, I can't verify it for somebody with a screen grab, but I just sent it over to you guys and I'll put it on social media. There are two nameplates that were on some of the doors. So one is for a Sergeant Huffman and the other is for a Captain Bowden. And I've held on to these since 19, you know, 90, 89, whenever they were filming it. And I've just had them and I've, I always had hoped that I would see, you know, something in the background, Blu-ray edition or something. But but I owed a bit of diehard history there. So that's uh, just some kind of cool. That but, uh, cool. So now, Michael. First rated R movie experience, favorite in the franchise. Why Die Hard with the Vengeance? You know what it is, I think, is it reset the tone, as we were saying. It just, it has a lot of humor to it. It has, because it takes place in New York City. And, you know, I grew up just outside the city. And so I, you know, I love the whole aspect to it. I think the story of it being a revenge film is, is, is a nice take to it. It shows more of the John McClane character. It moves his character along a little bit. You know, you see that now he's a full-blown alcoholic, struggling to just get through the day. He's lost his family. And there's a lot of good elements to that movie that are really, really important. And it is kind of funny, like, you know, they were blowing up New York City and they blew up a subway being, you know, like I said, post 9-11 world. It's, it's kind of weird to see that movie now. Like another movie that Bruce Willis is in is called The Siege, which is they actually do blow up the FBI building in New York City. And it's weird to see those things nowadays. But back then it was like, oh, my God, could you imagine this ever happened? Like, this is crazy. 
Well, yeah, it feels like this one just makes more sense in the universe. I mean, I think it's nice that we got a little bit of a space in between and now the brother's out for revenge, you know, type thing. So it wasn't the very first thing that happened right after that event. But you mentioned the siege and it made me think of something else, a phenomenon that occurred because of Die Hard and, you know, up to Die Hard with a Vengeance, I would say, which was it changed the way that movies were pitched. The shorthand now in the 90s, you could just say Die Hard on a blank, right? Mm -hmm. So you think of Under Siege with Steven Seagal. Uh What's that? Die Hard on a boat. Yeah. Speed. Die Hard on a bus. Uh Passenger 57 with Wesley Snipes. Die Hard on a plane. Air Force One with Harrison Ford. Die Hard on a plane with the president. With the president. (laughs) Yeah. And even Home Alone, Die Hard at Your House. (laughs) Uh, No one ever thought is, you know, Die Hard on a Submarine. You're right. Uh Yeah. I mean, it's just nonstop. So it's just interesting how people love the idea, the formula, Jeff, that you brought up. And then he said, okay, this makes sense. Let's put somebody, plug that in. You know, the other thing with Die Hard with the Vengeance, though, as I'm thinking about it, it was totally lost on me until earlier today when I picked up a VHS copy of Unbreakable that Bruce Willis had already been in a film with Samuel L. Jackson prior to M. Night Shyamalan pairing them up. It didn't even connect for me. And I was just looking at the cover. I'm like, oh, yeah, Die Hard with a Vengeance. How about Actually, that? Actually, was in two movies with him prior to, to Oh, Breakable. what was the other one? Pulp Fiction. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I missed that one, too. Although Not they weren't together actually, with him. Yeah. they didn't do any scenes together. Though. They really didn't have any scenes together, but yeah, they were in the same movie. But you're they right. were in the same movie, that's true. Well, I still think, I don't know, maybe they always try for it, but it does, one of the things that I think with the formula that Die Hard with a Vengeance figured out is that the key to a good action movie is a brilliant villain. And I don't mean yeah. intellectually brilliant, but I mean like, Jeremy Irons is still one of my favorite actors of all time. So you're going to throw Jeremy Irons in to fill Ellen Rickman's shoes. It's like, okay, Michael Ironside, come on now. Come on. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. Good point. Even when we were talking about speed, where we went from Dennis Hopper, Dennis Hopper can pull off villain to Willem Dafoe. Uh, He tried. He tried. But I don't go back and check out our three peed episode, everybody. One of the favorites. (laughs) But so now let's talk about because then it was like Bruce Willis. Okay, I'm done with Die Hard. Let's move on. I got a lot of other films to do. And then he comes back and we get live free or die hard. Which to me always felt like, you know, at least the last half of it, it's like a taken movie with Bruce Willis instead of Liam Neeson. And then you got the cyber terrorism, yes, sprinkled in. And then he's superhuman now instead of the everyman caught uh, in a bad situation. What did you guys feel about Live Free or Die Hard? Justin Long fans, anybody? He's pretty good in that movie. I'll give him that. You know, he was was good for the comedy relief part of it and... Now that I watched it again recently and I'm like, okay, I get it. I actually watched the R-rated version, which is a little bit better than the PG-13 version that they released in theaters. You which know, was, why? why? Why do that? You know who your audience is. It's not the kids that have never seen Die Hard that can right. get into the film now. It didn't make sense. Exactly. There's certain things about it that I think are stupid. Like there's a whole part where they're in like a, a power plant of some sort. and Basically, the whole building blows up because all the gas lines feed to it. And he hides in a, in a van and basically the whole building comes down on top of him and they get blown through a concrete wall and he gets out with not more than a scratch on his head. I was like, this guy should have <laughs> broken ribs, broken limbs. Like, and then he gets in and he can fly a helicopter five seconds later. And I'm like, but this is the same guy who 
in the first movie said he's afraid of heights. Now he can fly a helicopter. I was like, okay, come on, slow down. Yeah. The one moment I like in that movie, I thought that elevator fight with the female henchman. That's yes, a pretty good that's, fight. That's a really good fight. Yeah. yeah, that is a good scene. So they they got a few moments in there, but yeah. But overall, it's just it felt too hyper real. It just like whereas the other ones, you really felt like you know you're dire with a vengeance, gritty New York. You're in it. You know you feel it. You know same with the original. You know you're just kind of like at least the visceral experience felt realistic, but that one just did not. It felt green screened a lot of the time. Plus, I don't know. It was the one thing I didn't really like about Die Hard with a Vengeance is I don't think McLean needs a sidekick. So I just didn't like that he was saddled with this guy. He's got to protect. You know, just I don't know. It's not how McLean operates usually. I think it was more comic relief in the sense yeah. that they didn't want John him to have the funny lines. But he had them in all the other movies. Why not now? Well, why, why he had the snarky lines, and it was almost it was almost like you needed a uh, an observer, someone to bring a little bit of the reality to, like, what are we doing now? Sort of a thing. <laughs> that was my Samuel L. Jackson impression, by the way. Oh, Spot wow. on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But now I don't think any of us have seen a good day to die hard. So Michael, you're going to have to review that one for us ever so briefly. Sure. Jai Courtney, son of John McClane, future star of a die hard franchise. Oh, well, as the synopsis said earlier, McClane goes there because his son, he's on trial for murdering some guy at a club and McClane goes there to bail him out of Russian jail and finds out that really this guy, his son is in the CIA and he's protecting this other cartel guy or mafia guy or something like that. And chaos ensues and yada, yada, yada. They blow up half of the country. The movie ends <laughs> at Chernobyl. And oh Mc- McLean even says to his son, are we going to get cancer from being here? <laughs> and he goes, no, nah, you'll be all right. But they're in the end of the movie, they're swimming around in pools of like, nuclear waste and i was what? like wow <laughs> it's like, now they're literally gonna have superpowers i guess yeah, <laughs> and, and half the movie it felt more like a born identity movie because of the way they're doing the car chases and the fight sequence i'm like mclean is not this martial artist guy he's yeah. just a guy that throws punches and shoots people and then the other thing with that is if your dad is this famous cop who has saved people in a building saved people in an airport saved new york city saved washington dc the whole world would know this guy, and theoretically, the whole world would know his family, what they look like. So for his son to be this undercover CIA guy <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, I mean, we got McLean's kids in the mix now, which I don't know how much the films need to be involving his kids and so i'm very curious where we all land on that with the pitches because again i feel like it's got to be lone hero against the odds there's your john mcclain so let's see if we can bring this back around let's see what our pitches do and maybe before they do that prequel we can give them hope for one last hurrah for john Uh mcclain so michael why don't you start us off sure I was bouncing around with a bunch of different titles for a while, so I'll give you the list of titles that I went with before I chose the one that I picked. I started with Die Hard Legacy, that I felt like Legacy's been done a lot, like Tron Legacy, so I scratched that. Then I went Die Hard Requiem. It sounded like Requiem for a Dream, nixed that. Then I went Die Hard Vendetta. We already had With a Vengeance, I got rid of that. Then I went Die Hard Aftermath, made no sense. Die Hard (laughs) uh, Consequence, didn't work. Die Hard Heritage, 
Eh, then I went with Die Hard Birthright, and this is the one that I really uh-huh. seem to, to uh-huh. like. So, obviously, Bruce Willis comes back as McLean, the daughter comes back, and, and so on and so forth, and I bring back Bonnie Bedilla as Holly. I kind of want to recast John McClane's son. Uh-huh. I was feeling like Scott Eastwood looks more like a young Bruce Willis than Courtney looked like him, but the character is so small in this movie that it doesn't really make a difference. Uh-huh. So anyway, just a little footnote before I go into it is, in the first Die Hard movie, in the beginning of the airport, McLean has been a cop for 11 years. He says that on the airplane specifically, and this is in 1988. So now the movie, at least that I want, wants to take place in 2018, and it's the 30th anniversary of the Nakatomi hostage crisis at Christmas time. So Holly Gennaro is now ex-wife of McLean. She's also now the CEO of the Nakatomi Corporation. They have a celebration and remembrance of the losses they had on 30 years ago. Takagi, Harry Ellis, uh, the two Johnson FBI agents, the cop, co- the cops in the tank, and the two security guards that are killed by Hans's men at the beginning of the movie. McLean is being honored with a plaque. He's reluctant, but he's being dragged to the ceremony by his daughter, now Officer Lucy McLean. She's in- enrolled in the NYPD. They are greeted at the airport by Argyle, the limo driver, who is the same guy from the first movie. And Argyle tells him that he now owns his own limo company and he wants to drive him. And he he only calls him Mac. So I I went with Mac as his nickname. As they reach the Nakatomi Tower, now the whole building is fully high tech. And as he's standing outside the front of the building, McLean looks up and has a flashback of Hans Gruber falling from the building. So now Holly asks Lucy if McLean's okay. He reluctantly grins as he comes inside, and his son Jack, who his cover was blown from the CIA, now works for the Nakatomi Corporation as their head of cybersecurity. Jack mentions that Matt, played by Justin Long, also works for Nakatomi now, and he's making their special badges to go into the building. So McLean essentially got Matt a job working for his ex-wife. The elevators all now have a retinal scan and fingerprint authorization, so... Jack and John and Lucy and even Argyle go into the elevator and they go up to the party that they're having or this celebration. As they arrive, Holly greets them at the top of the elevator and her cell phone rings, forces to excuse herself. Sergeant Al Powell, I'm bringing back Reginald Vell Johnson because I'm a big Reginald Vell Johnson fan. He is now the captain of the LAPD. He comes over with his wife, who I named her Janet, and I cast this woman by the name of Regina King. And his son, Albert Jr., which is referenced that she's pregnant in the first movie. I chose Donald Glover and his daughter, Michelle, who I just chose this girl. Her name is Paige Hurd. They come over, they greet each other, they give each other a hug and yada, yada, yada. Matt comes over, says hello to everybody. He kind of greets Lucy awkwardly because it's implied that after the fourth movie, they had a little bit of a relationship and they're kind of uncomfortable around each other. After the awards ceremony of a fancy dinner, McLean stands on a balcony. He's looking over the city, and he just kind of has moments of quiet. Al comes over and joins him, because we never really have a scene other than at the end of the first Die Hard movie where Al and John are in, in the same scene. So I wanted them to have a moment with each other, hanging out and talking as old friends would. From a distance, you can see somebody or something is watching the tower from very far away. Later on, Holly gives Lucy a hard time that she decided to become a cop. And John tries to defend his daughter for choosing being a police officer. And she's like, but you could have done anything. You know, I, I have all these resources. Why do you want to become a cop? And we find now that as years have gone on, Holly and John's relationship has gotten more civil because 
in the last two movies, he saved their kids. So she kind of has forgiven him for all the stuff that he did to her and moves on from there. After the party, I have two versions of this. I'll tell you real quick the first version. Essentially, I want Lucy to be the main character in this movie. And in the first version, they're hanging out at Holly's mansion. McLean gets poisoned and an ambulance pulls up and Lucy goes to jump in the ambulance to bring John to the hospital. And Jack and Holly go to get in her car and her car blows up. And then McLean has a heart attack in the ambulance and they all die. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to skip that because, you know, A, it seems it's much darker than I really wanted to start the movie off with. And B, it doesn't give her anything to fight for. So I wanted to go a little bit different. So what happens is instead they're all having a glass of champagne or whatever. And even though McLean is sober, he's having a little sip of champagne and they go to open the bottle. John and Jack and Holly go to have a sip of the champagne. Lucy's cell phone rings. It's Al Jr. calling her up, and she kind of excuses herself for a second and misses the toast. She comes back, and they're on the ground. You know, they're they're convulsing. They're having, you know, they can't breathe, and she starts screaming. She has Al call 911, and Jack and Holly and John get rushed to the hospital. While at the hospital, Lucy's cell phone rings, and this guy on the other end goes. Hello, Lucy. My name is Theo. Your dad and I go way back, about 30 years to be exact, because in the first Die Hard movie, Theo, the guy who's hacking the vault, is the only guy McLean does not kill. Ah. In the movie, Argyle crashes into his this hospital van with him in it, in his limousine, and knocks him unconscious. So the essence is that Theo has been in prison for 30 years for the, for all the murders. He was kind of accused for everything, and he took the rap for everything that Hans thinks he's the only living guy from that organization. So after she has this conversation with him on the phone, she calls up Captain Al and says, you know, this guy Theo just called me. Like, who is this guy? And Al does some research, find out that he actually made parole somehow, and he's been plotting now to go after McLean and wipe out his entire family so now lucy is even more scared because she's this guy has been watching her and so now you have captain al his son and they're hanging out at the hospital and they're kind of pacing back and forth and they're talking about hans gruber and how this guy was like his computer guy they find out that he's like a cyber genius so they have to go enlist matt to help them track down this theo guy and so they go to matt's apartment and he's tracking the cell phone call to this apartment building. They go to the apartment building, and it's a little from the fourth movie. When McLean goes to get Matt, his computer is rigged to explode. Well, the building that they go to find Theo, it's actually just a, a regular residential building. And Lucy gets another call on her cell phone, and he's playing Simon Says with her, like Simon Gruber did with McLean. And you find out that when McLean was going against Simon, Theo was feeding him all the riddles, and he was the one that was, oh. was the mastermind for Die Hard with a Vengeance. I like that. And she tells her that the building's going to blow up with them in it, and she has a minute and a half to get everybody out of the building. He's already cut the power to the building, so everyone's standing in the hallway, and she's rushing to get people out of the building as it's ready to blow up. And as they get everybody outside, she sees a little girl in the window. She runs back inside, grabs this girl, and, like, throws herself out of a window with the girl and like lands in a dumpster as the building blows up. Now they have to steal a car because we see in a distance there's a car kind of watching the building. 
and the headlights turn on and starts pulling away and she thinks this is Theo or watching them. So they steal a car and in every Die Hard movie since Die Hard 2, there's always been some sort of car chase. So I had to throw a car chase trope into this movie uh-huh. and they're chasing through the streets of L.A., trying to catch this guy, going weaving in and out. And all of a sudden, as they're ready to catch him, this Hummer-type vehicle comes from the side and sideswipes them and smashes them into a building and or like a column or something like that, and they crash. And the Humvee drives off, the guy they're chasing drives off, and the police come, they bring him to the precinct, and while at the precinct, she gets another phone call to go back to the Nakatomi building because we find out that Theo still wants to get the Barabons from the Nakatomi vault. So she says, so this is what this is all about. It's another robbery. You're just another thief. This isn't about revenge. You want money. And he goes, isn't it always about money? He's calling, oh, are you, all you McLeans are cowboys. And she's like, well, yippee-ki-yay. And he kind of like gets pissed off by her saying that. Now, Lucy, Matt, and... Al Jr. go to the building. They need Matt to get into the building because he can override the computer systems because he works doing that. And Al Jr. goes because he's also a cop, we find out, for the LAPD. And he's there to help Lucy in case there's a bunch of terrorists or, you know, whatever there are in the building. So as they get to the building, this time Captain Al, or Carl Winslow, as we would know him from, (laughs) comes with all the SWAT teams and everything. And they find out that Almost all the doors to the building are rigged, and Theo is basically controlling the computer system in the building. And he opens one door for just the three of them to come in. And he says, if you see, if I see any other cops, I'll blow every door in this building and wipe everybody out. I have the whole place rigged to explode. And the big thing about this is I really want this to be an origin story for Lucy because she's more or less a rookie cop, maybe a year or two in, and... Even though she understands what's going on, and she's, she is a McLean and she has that thing in her, she's still scared and she's, you know, nervous, like, what am I going to do? And we find out that Theo also has the antidote to whatever he drugged her parents and brother with. And she has to get it from him, but has to do what he wants in order to do so. So now they get up to the floor where the vault is and, you know, they're all equipped now with, like, body armor, they got everything, they need a bulletproof vest, they have weapons and so on and so forth, because they figure they're going to have a shootout. Well, like I said, they're more or less rookie cops. They're not mentally prepared for what they're going to step into. So they get to where they got to be, and they get cornered by his thugs, right? And they get forced to more or less disrobe, get all their armor off and everything, take away all their guns, and they're kind of just standing there in you know boxer shorts and t-shirts or whatever it is and just kind of almost to shame them and embarrass them to make them feel like they're completely vulnerable so now outside the vault and we find out that there's the barabons in there all kinds of fortune and the barabons have increased in value over the last 30 years so they were 47 million in the 80s now they're 47 billion at this point or whatever it is some absurd number and the the thing that we find out is Theo tells her that Holly has set it up that in the event that something were to happen to her, the only people that could access that vault are Jack and Lucy. And they require retinal scan, fingerprint, and voice authorization. So he's threatening to kill Matt and Al Jr. 
if she doesn't do this. You know, she's nervous about it and she kind of like is reluctant. She has no weapons, nothing. She more or less hasn't fired a shot the whole movie because most police officers never fire their gun in a live scenario because if they do, they're usually out of commission for six months to a year because of the trauma of firing their weapon at somebody. And you know, she's just not mentally there yet to do it. So she goes over to the vault, does the retinal scan, does the fingerprint scan. And then this is kind of hokey. I, I like it, but some of my friends who read this said it was a little cheesy. I said, you know, there's a voice recognition and he goes, okay, well, what do I have to say? And Theo goes to her, you already said it to me. She goes, what are you talking about? He goes, you know. And she kind of like nervously says the yippee Kaye line. And I did that on purpose because I want to have that line end at this point. Like, we've heard it in every single movie. It doesn't mean as much as it did that first time. So this is kind of like, this is the line that's always been the Calvary is coming line. And now it's almost working against her because it opens the vault and gets Theo what he wants. And so as she starts going inside the vault, she notices that there's like a little tiny little lockbox right off her shoulder that Theo can't see. She uses her fingerprint and a handgun slides out and she quickly turns around and shoots Theo, but kind of shoots him in the leg or like in the shoulder and he goes down. Theo then shoots back at her, hitting her in the shoulder, throwing her out of the vault. Now, she starts having a, a skirmish with one of the other hostage takers or whatever, and they're battling each other, fighting. Matt tries to go after Theo in the vault. He turns and shoots him, and it looks like a really fatal wound. He drops to the ground. He's, you know, out of commission. Al Jr. is trying to fight off the other guy, and he knocks a couple other thugs out. Lucy grabs a vase and knocks the person out that she goes after, turns around and grabs a gun and just unloads it on Theo till he's dead. Now, the one key thing that he said to her beforehand is, I have the cure to your family's whatever close to my heart. So she runs over, she rips open his shirt, and there's three vials of whatever this antidote is, but one of them is broken. So only two of the three vials can save two of the three family members that she has. So now we cut to at the hospital, she's got a cast on her arm or whatever, and Al Jr.'s all bandaged up. We find out that Matt wasn't killed. He was terribly, terribly wounded. And she goes in, and she's sitting down, and she's talking to her dad. And he basically tells her, save your mother, save your brother. And so she gives the two vials to save Holly and Jack, and McLean dies. Then we have a funeral scene where all of New York City is there. We go back to New York City. We have like uh, Samuel L. Jackson shows up. Anybody that's ever had an impact from McLean is there at this big service. Lucy does the eulogy. We see that Matt is actually in a wheelchair. Because I kind of liked, I I just watched um, the Spider-Man Homecoming movie. And he's like, oh, we need a man in the chair. And I was like, okay, in future movies, Matt will be her man in the chair if she ever has to do anything. And you know, we have this service. Lucy gives the eulogy, and the movie ends. And that's my story in a nutshell. It's 
what I wrote was six pages long, so I had to cut it down and summarize it. So we're not here until <laughs> in the morning. That sounds but... like an Adam pitch. Yeah. I know. I was saying. Uh, very detailed, yeah. No, but yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to to move the franchise forward. You know, if you want to see Mary Elizabeth Winstead's audition for this, I think it's Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is Die Hard in a Bomb Shelter. So <laughs> exactly, we can see she's done it. <laughs> But no, I love bringing Theo back, though. That's so cool. That's a detail probably nobody paid attention to, right? That he's the only one who didn't die. Yeah. Wow. In all the movies, he's the only one that he hasn't killed in all the movies. Oh, I didn't know that part. I watched all five movies, five, four, three, two, one, and wow. I kept note of, okay, who did he kill? Who did not get killed? And Theo was the only one in all the movies that was not killed, other than like the random German terrorist guys that they arrest in this warehouse in Canada in, in with a vengeance. But anybody that had a speaking role was killed otherwise. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, but I like how it came around back at the end. So that's very cool. Oh, Jeff, what do you got? Well, and that's what you were saying about nobody figuring that. Well, except for that was also my villain as well was going to be Theo. <laughs> really? All right, again, let's hear it. I'm, I'm more familiar with, with that one, but Okay, so, uh, well, and I should point out, too, is that my later connection that I have with Die Hard is one of my roommates at one point was Day White that played Argyle. So I did want to uh, make Argyle have a larger role uh, moving forward. The wait, 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 are you saying you were roommates with Argyle? Yeah. What? Nope. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's it, crazy. It, yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Uh, I, it took me a while to actually, I'm like, that wasn't you. That wasn't, oh, that is you. Like you look, yeah, that's him. Anyway, so the one that I came up with was die period hard period, but it would take place 30 years later as well. John McClane arriving in JFK from wherever, if we wanted him to be in Russia or whatever, swimming in the Chernobyl Lake, that's fine. Uh, but either way. He's in JFK. He hops into an Uber and says that he's, you know, heading home or wherever he's going. And the driver turns around and goes, hey, man, like, what's happened or whatever. And it's Argyle. And so he's the Uber driver now and because Argyle was a talker. So Argyle tells John his kind of life story that he's, you know, was a very successful limo driver. And now he does Uber and he's made good money. But I tell you, man, I never topped that high that we had back in Nakatomi because he really thought that was the the most you know exciting thing that he'd ever done. And McLean keeps trying to convince him that, like, it, this isn't a game, like it's not fun. People die, you know, whatever. And if you don't believe me, you know, you should go look up Zeus in Harlem because Zeus will tell you that, yeah, it's not all fun and games or whatever. So then Argyle drops off McLean and then he drives home. And when he's at home, he's kind of thinking about everything that happens and maybe has one of those stereotypical moments of staring in the mirror and doing self-reflection or whatever. But either way, has this moment of, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. So he drives to Harlem the next day and goes and looks up Zeus, who now Zeus is obviously quite a bit older, but and so is maybe not as active, but is still as grumpy. And so uh, Argyle asks Zeus to mentor him into like being this hero or whatever. And Obviously, that's not what Zeus has been about or is about or ever. So he just kind of like blows him off. So Argyle, though, instead decides that he's going to look around Harlem and there's problems and there's issues. So probably right as soon as he leaves Zeus, he sees somebody getting mugged. And so he decides he's going to be a hero and he's going to go out and try and help people. And so he tries to 
fails and is about to get shot until Zeus has to come out and save him and tell him, like, you got to stop doing this. But then, you know, the next day or something, he comes back and he tries to do something else like that again. And then again, he blows it and Zeus has to kind of keep bailing him out and bailing him out. But we start to get kind of this trend of bad things that he's trying to do. Zeus is kind of picking up on the fact that, like, you know, there aren't usually this many things going on in Harlem. And it kind of starts to become, you know, a trend that he's noticing. This is where my plot gets a little fuzzy, but I didn't want to do a straight up copycat of the Simon Says stuff from Die Hard with a Vengeance, but something where they actually have contact with this mysterious person who is sending them threats unless they do something. So then they have to keep doing it and struggling it and blah, 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 blah. And then, yeah, we eventually find out that this mysterious man turns out to be Theo. Yeah, and then I hadn't quite worked out. I mean, I guess you would probably want to work McLean back in somewhere, but I kind of like it being the Zeus and Argyle show, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because... My thought was, because the same thing like with McLean in the first one where McLean is just a beat cop. I mean, yeah, he's a cop. So, yeah, he is trained, but he's not, you know, a mercenary. He's not a commando. He doesn't have like all this sort of training. So you get Argyle and Zeus who have no training whatsoever. And so for them to be kind of thrust into this sort of a situation, I could see that possibility of having a similar sort of feel to that very first one of kind of being thrust into the hero role. And then, yeah, figuring out, I, I like what you were saying, Michael, about the goal is always money. I was kind of picturing Theo being some sort of like a drug lord mob boss sort of a thing where he was trying to control Harlem. But if he had some sort of a less sinister basic motive, I think that would be kind of cool too instead. So anyway, and then of course they end up defeating him and then he dies in a horrible explosion. <laughs> Well, Jeff, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that you waited <laughs> until this moment to tell us that Argyle was your roommate. Right. Because that is going <laughs> well, to because... why is he not on this episode? What because are you doing? Like, it's Argyle. I mean, do people even remember he's in the movie? I mean, like... Well, two of you guys put him in a pitch, and I'm telling you right true. now, he's in my pitch. So <laughs> obviously, remember Argyle. <laughs> we do. We need to send him a message then. Yeah. He also introduced out. me to the song that they had that goes, this is Christmas music. You know, he introduced yeah. me to that song in the 80s. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's see how the adventures of Argyle continue on my side. <laughs> things here. Um, so mine is a continuation. It is Die Hard Six. Hit the wall and die hard, <laughs> aka Die Hard in a hotel. So here we go. Now John McClane has been trying to enjoy retirement, but he finds his fellow retirees to be a bore. So he and Al meet up in Montana for their annual fishing trip. And when McLean gets a call from his ex-wife, Holly, telling him that their daughter, Lucy, is going to the hospital to give birth, he gets excited, going to meet his grandchild, he arrives via plane in Los Angeles, realizing he hasn't been back to the city since his brief stint working for the LAPD following the events at Nakatomi Plaza in 1988. So he is met by Argyle, the limo driver, holding a sign <laughs> with his name on it. Yes. Who reveals when they arrive at the limo that he's not the driver. He actually owns the super posh hotel where John's been given a luxury suite by Lucy's husband. So he's moving on up, baby. Now, hijinks ensue when McLean arrives at the hotel, totally uncomfortable with the luxurious decor and the overly helpful staff. And, you know, he's just a 
blue collar guy. But Argyle gives him the grand tour, showing him the nightclub, showing him the security staff, armory, and all the features of the VIP suite where he's staying. And he has McLean try a gourmet plate of food that's delivered by room service, which instantly makes him sick. And so uh, after throwing up in the bathroom, the son-in-law, Daniel, played by Wilmer Valderrama from that 70s show, he's great, arrives to McLean's room to tell him that Lucy was just in false labor and going to be staying overnight at the hospital in case the real thing happens. So Grandpa can just relax and enjoy himself. Now, Daniel is a handsome Latino who's very proud to be the deputy mayor of Century City. And he uh, tells John he could pull some strings for him get into any of the fanciest restaurants or golf courses. Anyway, a security entourage arrives in the hotel with the recently named Republican presidential nominee, Senator Rafferty of Arizona, played by J.K. Simmons, who has been ruthless on immigration issues, even working with the incumbent to get construction started on a wall along the Mexico-Arizona border. And he's planning to continue it into California. And Daniel talks smack on the senator about being a racist before returning to the hospital. So Argyle then sends some professional escorts up to John's room, who he quickly sends away, saying he's old enough to be their father. What is he thinking? McLean falls asleep, but he's awoken by a commotion down the hall. Then looking out the window, he sees guests and staff fleeing the hotel in a panic. McLean covertly investigates using the room's security camera feature that's meant for celebrities, and he sees Senator Rafferty's bodyguards being killed by a group of terrorists outside his room when the senator is then taken hostage. So the terrorists break into McLean's room to forcibly remove him and all the other guests on the floor, but they find it empty as he's taken refuge in a hidden panic room. So McLean then gets a news update on his phone, revealing the terrorists to be a militant immigrant rights group led by Miguel Montero, played by Antonio Banderas, planning to trade the senator's life for the halting and uh, destruction of the wall. But the ping of the phone tips off the thugs, and McLean has to fight his way out of the panic room and into a service elevator. And McLean's trying to take out Montero's forces in creative ways, using the hotel amenities and reluctantly rescuing Rafferty, who he also finds to be offensive. But Rafferty's a former Vietnam POW who belligerently rejects McLean's help, getting them both caught. So McLean eventually discovers that Montero is not the Che Guevara-style freedom fighter he claims to be. Instead, he's in with the Mexican drug cartels and he's actually using this incident to ensure that the wall gets built to better cover their drug running and then have Rafferty hook him up with some other officials who will look the other way by giving them you know, the promise of millions of dollars in bribes from the drug trade. Of course, the senator refuses, which causes Montero to show him live video of Rafferty's own daughter and grandchild having been taken hostage as well. So it's then revealed that Rafferty's grandson is half Hispanic and that the senator is not the bigot he's made out to be by the media. He explains to McLean that he believes the wall will create a faster end to the ill will towards illegal immigrants, and he's going to propose some better legislation for illegal immigration after it's built. So the sight of the mother and a child in danger, of course, stirs anger in McLean, you know, who's imagining his own soon-to-be-born grandchild in that scenario. So McLean 
fakes out Montero by screaming at Rafferty about not having any guts to do what's right for his family, you know, pretending to assault the senator, but actually throwing him in a hidden elevator revealed earlier by Argyle and sending the pair down to the hotel kitchen. So Montero's men follow and there's a big fight with all the kitchen implements and knives and whatever that spills over into the nightclub. And there's lots of bottles of alcohol being used as weapons, bar stools, whatever. And then after breaking into the security armory, they find that it's all non-lethal weapons. And the pair make it to the parking garage where Montero pursues McClave and Rafferty and Ar- Argyle's VIP stretch Hummer, resulting in an intense car chase that ends with Montero crashing his vehicle into a concrete slab wall. The McClave remarking, looks like he just hit the wall. So the film ends with Rafferty deciding to cancel the wall construction, instead focusing on his immigration reform bill, and McLean arriving at the hospital to see his grandson in the hospital nursery. Holly informs him that the baby's name is Juan, and that maybe it's time for new beginnings all around as she takes McLean's hand and credits roll. (laughs) There you go. Die hard in a hotel. That is a lot. You know, we got topical issues in there. We got the many adventures of Argyle, which it sounds like, regardless, he's, he's going to end up in wh- whatever the pitch we choose. All right. All right. Well, Jeff, which pitch do you vote for? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I got to say, like, the whole building the wall thing just makes me a little uncomfortable. I would have to I'd have to go with Michaels. And not only that, it does tie in the franchise pretty well. All right. Michael. Well, I can't vote for myself, right? No. <laughs> I, so, so I will have to go with Jeff. So I think, again, the wall thing kind of took me out of it a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I get where he's going with it. It's almost like something he should write for Funny or Die and just go for <laughs> go for. Yeah. <laughs> Valid point. It seemed like the most likely step. You know, we're, we're headed in that direction with these films anyway. All right. So your vote was for Jeff, correct? Yes. All right. Adam, where do you stand? It's hard because here's the thing. Like, Jeff, I love the just ballsiness of saying let's get McLean out of there make it the Zeus and, <laughs> and I mean like I, I can see where that would go but at the same time I'm just like I don't think anybody's going to be on board for that unfortunately yeah. they'll be like wait wait you're telling me Bruce Willis is barely in this movie even though in Michaels he's barely in it at least we've had Lucy McLean in the last two movies so it seems mm. like the next logical choice and plus Mary Elizabeth Winston's pretty awesome. So I I could buy her eventually, you know, take it on that role. So uh, Michael gets the vote. Nice. Just so you guys know, before A Good Day to Die Hard, it was Jack McClane that was supposed to be the main character. But then after that movie happened, I was like, all right, I got to go the other direction. And right now with, you know, women in cinema, they're looking for heroic women roles. So I was like, all right, I got to go all in on Lucy. And I thought she's a great actor anyway. So I went with that. That's how I was going for it. Nice. Well, Michael, you are the champion this time around. We're going to see that movie, Birthright. Now, the one thing I want to understand, so you said that in this scenario, Theo was the mastermind behind everything? Yeah. You said that he he was basically pulling the strings on the Groovers the whole time? I think that's kind of an interesting trope to tie those two movies with this movie, and you can theoretically forget the other ones in a way because i feel like hans was not necessarily the mastermind like almost like theo pitched this idea to him and he just needed hans to get his men to take the building so that theo could go in and then while theo's in prison he's like i want to get more money now and and 
what's a better way to do it? I'll go after the Federal Reserve and I'll get Han's brother, who's already angry at McLean, and McLean's now back being an NYPD cop. Let me pull those strings, too, and see how I can make this work for me. And then we wrap it all around, and he comes back after he's out of prison and everyone else is dead, and now he goes at it on his own. And then he kidnaps a Russian girl so that so that the son can <laughs> swim through Chernobyl. Or yes, exactly. Whatever. My one thought about that, though, at least for me, like my perspective is one of the things that works so well about Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance was having such a strong villain. And I don't know, like performance wise, because I thought Theo did a great job at being the like stereotypical computer nerd and even kind of like the cool computer nerd. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that he has the same gravitas. That was where I was kind of thinking you have like a false villain that can bring some gravitas, almost like Ben Kingsley, sadly, did in Iron Man 3. Well, I think we need the Gruber sister, you know, an evil German woman who is the front at first. German German women in movies, one, they're rarely actually German. They're just people, it seems like, doing poor German accents. We'll get Charlize Theron in there. She'll do it. Well, she can do... (laughs) You can do just about anything. Angelina, somebody. (laughs) That's actually, it's funny. In the story that I wrote, I didn't even go there. But in this, there's a female hostage taker that Lucy fights. And we could almost, I didn't even, I forgot even to mention that. But I just remembered it now. That we could make her be the Gruber relative or maybe like Simon's daughter or Hans's daughter or something like that. You know, and, and carried on that way as well. I didn't even think about that when I was writing this. Yeah. The only reason, the only reason why I thought like Theo was kind of cool because you know what else he's done? Have you looked at his IMDb? He was the sidekick on that Nash Bridges show, or no? Or was oh. it Walker Texas Ranger? I think it's Walker yeah, Texas. Yeah, I was, was going to say Texas that was Stranger. Cheech Marin. <laughs> right. No, but you're right. Yeah, he's the sidekick on Walker Texas Ranger. I was like, oh my god, wow. that guy. Right. <laughs> Well, and that's where, like, yeah, he's he's good at, at that. I mean, he was great as Theo. It's For me, I, I certainly enjoyed those diehard moments where you kind of got the back and forth between the hero and the villain. Yeah. And the back and forth between with Theo, like, I don't know, it, it feels to me, that would be my only hesitation, is it feels to me like a lot of those movies where you get the, like, hacker tech guy that's the villain it just, I don't know how well it reads in... Well, I, I like the idea, though, that he has to overcompensate, so he is crazy. Like, he's... he's Whereas the other ones were so cold and calculated, McClane right. doesn't know how to deal with this guy because he's nuts. Like, number one, he's been in prison planning this stuff out for so long, but he's just unpredictable, and he's probably, like, killing people all the time, you know, like, where you're just not expecting it. And that's what I feel like. You, you gotta maybe work that in somehow just yeah. to up the stage a little bit to make Theo feel like a threat because like yeah he was silly whatever he does but he's gotta do it in such a way that like he's over the top like that and then he flips all of a sudden and now he's like a killer and you're like whoa 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 you know like so that type of thing where he's unpredictable so maybe for Lucy dealing with that you know like because McLean has dealt with it before, but not really, you know, so now Lucy is maybe, maybe McLean couldn't have done it, but she can, you know, so yeah, the one question I had was, uh, because it sounded like we had Justin Long back in there, right? Mm -hmm. So you said he's back in, I mean, is there any way we work Argyle in briefly, you know, just like like (laughs) outside of, it's outside of meeting him at the airport or whatever? He was at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I really wanted to, like, I I had a part in here that I, I thought almost the car chase scene that 
Lucy would yeah. have to call Argyle and be like, I need you to drive me to chase this guy. But it was like, I almost was like, how far away could he possibly be if the car's right there watching them? <laughs> Would it logistically make sense? But I was like, that's what I, in my head, I was like, man, it'd be awesome to have like Argyle pull up in like a stretch limousine chasing this this other car. It would be hilarious. Well, it'd be funny oh. if he had to pull, like you're saying, if he needs a distance so there's a little bit more tension. Like he probably has kids now or he's yeah. got his baby mama calling him, you know, and he's like, ah, <laughs> oh, you know, he's like trying to get over there. And then he's like, Tessie, get back here. You know, so there's like that whole comedic dynamic, which he always was offering, you know? Right. And then he could be making all this commentary about being a dad and stuff while he's driving and doing all the crazy stunts. I think that that would be just a fun moment. Again, bring him back, give Jeff's roommate some more work, you know? He's a job. Give him some work. But that, oh, and that yeah. was the thing with, with McLean, you know, when I thought about how would I take him out of the scenario, right? And he's survived so many other things but he's never had something I, I looked at it as if like the you know the superman scenario as powerful as superman is he couldn't save his father from having a heart attack and i thought like with mclean if he's poisoned he can't compensate for that he it's there's no he has no control over that where like an explosion or gunshots this guy walks away from everything but if it's something so small and so simple he doesn't have the ability to overcome that and that's what I thought was important to take him out of the scenario of the movie. Well, and then, like you said, moving forward, because he's he's just too old now. Yeah. The one thing that I would say, though, I love Al Jr., which I feel it didn't. Wasn't that a line from the first movie where they said something about Al Jr.? He goes, my, my wife is pregnant with our first. And then McLean goes, well, I can't wait to see my son, my, my kids swing yes. in the jungle with Al Jr. With Al Jr., that's what it is. But my one thing is, especially now with the success of Atlanta, is that you would need to give it something more substantial if you're going to get Donald Glover to do it. Because it, he'd almost... Because, like you said, the, you know, the, the Al Jr. role didn't seem to be as significant as Lucy's role. Um, you're right. So. No, I, I, I thought about that because he's a name. I thought about him, you know... In community and how funny he is, he'd be you know him and That's Matt true. together would be a good comic relief with each other. And I almost wanted it to create a future movie that him and Lucy become a couple and they take down terrorists together in the future. Like they're a team going forward. You know, it's almost like a I'm gonna use the term legacy. Like he's his father's legacy. He's a cop and she's her father's, and they're like a team fighting terrorists in future movies. See, you've got the banner right there. Fighting terrorists in the future is just, <laughs> I'd watch that movie. I'd yeah, watch that yeah. movie. It sounds like, you know, that's unfortunately not where they're taking it, but no. we we kind of wish they would. <laughs> and uh, so we'll, we'll see if this prequel happens or if they get wind of this plot. And they say, you know what? It's the time of the female action star is now. Let's get star. it you done. You know who doesn't get enough play? Argyle. Let's do the Argyle. <laughs> let's do the Argyle origin story. Maybe that's what'll come from this. Oh, oh, just give him his own <laughs> franchise. I feel like he could have uh, had like a Beverly Hills Cop style franchise, if, you know, if they had gone like in the '90s, take it to the next level. He would have been great, like this limo driver who's, you know, or maybe he could have gotten like a TV show, you know, in his own spinoff where he's, yeah. you know, he's a PI that drives a limo. That would have been great. Would it, I how thought. hilarious would it be, like? If he's the limo driver that picks up Mel Gibson for Lethal Weapon, picks up Eddie Murphy, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, he just has all these stories about these guys that have saved L.A. <laughs> Michael, where can we see your your work? Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, if you want to check out my Twitter, it's at Knizzle, C-A-N-N-I-Z-Z-L-E. Um, <laughs> story behind that is a kid I used to work with years ago. 
I was telling him stories when I was in college when he was like 18. He's like, oh, man, Knizzle, you're cool. And I was like, and it kind of just stuck. My first, so I was like, all right, I'll go with that. But you can check me out on, on Twitter if you want or same thing on Instagram. Hopefully I'm working on some projects right now. I'm trying to get some documentaries going about a comic book store that is near me. And I'm trying to get some, you know, work going with that. If you're going to be at New York Comic Con, I'm going to be there going around for a couple of days, checking stuff out next week. So that'll be pretty cool. Yeah. And if you ever want to talk about movies, just hit me up on Twitter and I'll, I'll chat with you for days. All right. Well, great. So in honor of our supervillain, Theo. The podcast is toast. Everybody, I feel like everybody needs to do their Hans Gruber impression like we did our Bane impressions on the Batman episode. I love Mr. Cowboy. <laughs> I want my I, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I don't I believe I've I don't believe I've seen 60 minutes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. ITunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 